Good evening, and welcome to this edition of VE Radio. Once again, it's your host, Neil Kiernan. Um, going to be bringing you part two, effectively, of the Clint Curtis interview, because the previous version was interrupted due to a technical glitch. I'm hoping that we don't have that problem again. I did email Blog Talk Radio about that, but that's the, the difficulty of doing internet broadcasts. So, but we're good now, and thankfully, despite Clint's fears, when I was talking about a guy who got murdered for uncovering election fraud, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, dead in my um, bathtub somewhere. So, we're good. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and um, bring Clint on. Um, welcome back, Clint, to V Radio. It's good to have you. Good to be back, sir. So leaving basically just to kind of summarize for people who are just tuning in now, uh, where we left off was just me discussing that there are people in very powerful positions who stand to have a lot to gain by the, you know, essentially having the ability to control the outcome of elections. And people basically are just completely unaware of it. And like you said, when we were actually getting ready for this broadcast, you know, I think a lot more people might actually be aware of it. They probably think about the possibility when they're, putting their ballot in the machine, that any computer can be hacked, a calculator can be hacked. Um, and it's just like you, you know, you've pointed out multiple times, it's actually a lot easier than people think. And, you know, it's at that point, it kind of just draws into question the validity of any of our elections. And to reinforce the reason why I, I've been hammering on this is that I've been frustrated that um, some of the progressive people in media, meaning independent media, keep discussing the failings of Bernie Sanders' campaign strategy, and we can't even really make any kind of accurate assessment on his campaign strategy's successes or failures when you consider the fact that some of those same progressive pundits are reporting that we have election fraud, you know, like the exit poll deviations are well within the range of showing fraud. So, and uh, I have good news for listeners that TDMS Research uh, actually has agreed to come on the show, and we're going to be looking at doing that sometime later in the week. Um, but, you know, so to go back into what I was getting at, and then, you know, we'll talk a little bit more on this part, and then we'll move on to the gerrymandering topic, and then we'll talk about your your candidacy for Congress, which I hope succeeds. Um, so basically, the the short form of it is is that these machines, just like any other computer machine, are completely hackable by anybody with that interest. You actually pointed out some information I wasn't you know, yet familiar with was that the Russians had apparently gotten their hands on some of the code. Um, I would say that that's certainly uh, you know, valid and certainly relevant, but I, at this point, I, I'm actually more concerned about people locally trying to control the outcome of our elections. You know, not to say it isn't a threat that China and other countries could try to interfere you know, I think the biggest thing that bothered me about, you know, all of the talk about Russia's interference last time was that a large part of it was just releasing emails that revealed what the Democratic Party had done to Bernie Sanders. And to me, that just made it sound like a Scooby-Doo villain saying I could have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. But, you know, I do recognize that we obviously don't want people from outside the country doing it. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, you know, since we're talking about a, a computer, that all it does is tallies votes. You know, it doesn't really have to be a very complex system, which probably just makes it all the easier to hack, doesn't it? Well, actually, 
for some reason, most of the commercial programs have hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Even though my little mock-up that I did, which was basically the guts of the system, is about 24 lines, and it will calculate out to, you know, 300 million votes. So, yeah, it's overly complicated, so it doesn't have to be that way. But as far as the Russians having access and all these other countries, the issue is that what we heard about was the emails, email, email, email. But what really happened was the Russians actually hacked into the division that monitors all of the electronic voting machines and reports their vulnerabilities and has their source code on file. They also hacked into all too many, no, at least four of the databases in various states, one of them being Michigan, one of them being Pennsylvania, one of them being Florida. I don't know what the other one is. We are told that they didn't actually penetrate the voting systems, but prior to the information on them hacking into those four states, we were told they hadn't hacked into those four states. So I'm always a little uncomfortable trying to believe someone who lied to me the day before. Sure. So well, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And with these voting machines, we have to worry about the local guys getting in there, but now it's a free-for-all. The last guy in can make the election go their way. It's just that now, simple. I feel last badly that I can't – Oh, I can't. I feel badly. I can't remember the name of the activist, but she was like the essentially the main focus of the uh, hacking democracy film, and she wasn't even a computer literate person, and she got into the gems program, like just just through an accident by looking around the website for I think it was Diebold, you know, and they just had all their source code just sitting there, you know, and and they tried to accuse her of hacking later, but this was like a you know, like a librarian, like, you know, bus driver. I mean, she wasn't like, you know, she wasn't a computer hacker, you know, and Mm -hmm. they just so carelessly allowed that to happen. And then they, you know, then they tried to cover up for it, but that was what got her started in it. And um, I will again, make those uh, links to those films available to people hacking democracy. You know, I've actually had to pay to watch, but um, Murder Lies, I'm sorry, Murder Spies and Election Lies is available for free on Vimeo. Um, you know, but I, I agree with you that, you know, it's a concern that I think people don't even realize. And, and more to the point, now it's it's moving towards uh, impacting the uh, people have on policies. You know, if we're going to, and I don't mean necessarily policies as much as strategies, this has really disheartened the progressive movement. People are really upset that this happened the way that it did. And they were upset in 2016, you know, and now that they're, the DNC is on record defending themselves from a uh, lawsuit filed by angry Bernie supporters who donated to the DNC and wanted their money back after they found out that the 2016 election had been swayed, you know, in the direction of Hillary Clinton, you know, now we're in a situation where the morale of the progressive movement is really low. And unfortunately, that situation is only getting worse uh, with Bernie dropping out. And then the question of like, you know, are we going to vote for Biden? Are we going to vote for Green Party? Are we going to, you know, there's so many options out on the table. And I plan on doing a show about that pretty soon. I actually just did my first blog in a long time on that topic. And we'll get into that at another time. But um it, that's what I think beyond anything else that bothers me the most about this is that 
people are making statements like Bernie Sanders is weak or he should have done this or he should have done that when we can't even really make any kind of accurate statements about what he should or should not have done. It is my view, looking at what TDMS research revealed and just watching as the first three primaries um, unfolded was that what we had was Bernie did really well in Iowa and then Pete Buttigieg, who just happened to have invested a lot of money in the company that you know wrote the shadow app that's entire purpose was to calculate the caucuses information to be sent to the central database to determine the outcome of those caucuses and then well who else well they were hillary clinton supporters or you know staffers actually who were also involved in that app you know we're supposed you know and then the weird thing that happened where pete Buttigieg just kind of trickled his way all the way to the top and you know um then you know he he wins quote unquote wins in iowa even though bernie ended up having more of the overall vote the DNC in Iowa just decided to go ahead and give, um, you know, just to go ahead and give Pete like one extra delegate just so that they could try to kill Bernie's momentum. And then they went into New Hampshire and something very similar happened, although I think, yeah, Bernie came out on top in New Hampshire. And then by Nevada, I think they had backed off of all of that because in Nevada, Bernie just came in really hard in a landslide. And that's when all of the pundits were terrified. And, you know, people like that James Carville guy were like, you know, I think this is all going really well for Vladimir Putin. I, that guy is probably like one of my least liked people <laughs> I've ever in, seen interacting <laughs> with in, in the Democratic Party. But anyway, you know, and then we move on to South Carolina, where there was cover for the issue because, you know, Joe Biden was expected to win South Carolina. And then all of these other candidates suddenly drop out, including Beat Buttigieg, who is at that point still in second place in delegates. And then mysteriously, that's when the most enormous amounts of uh, exit poll deviations were revealed, particularly in states like Texas, where they were reporting that Bernie was winning pretty much all day. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Biden wins. Um, you know, and I don't think they do it everywhere. I think they kind of weigh whether or not they can get away with it and how often they can get away with it. I also think that's part of the reason why they've been so desperate to get this over with. You know, like James Carville wanted them to shut those down, you know, like as soon as Joe Biden had any kind of a lead. And I honestly feel that, you know, the other element to this was that somebody else pointed out was looking at from the opposing perspective as to why they think that some kind of computer algorithm was deciding the outcome was that we're supposed to believe that after the epidemic had started and it was proven to be dangerous to go out and vote, that people are supposedly risking their lives to go out and vote for these candidates who haven't been campaigning, like, you know, obscure candidates like Deval, Pat Deval Patrick was still getting votes. You know, um, we're supposed to believe that Pete Buttigieg supporters still went out to vote for him. I mean, that's a little more believable, but there were people getting votes that hadn't even campaigned like a, a long, long time ago, like even Delaney, which leads me to believe that they wrote that algorithm, probably thinking to themselves they needed to make it look realistic and probably not thinking that this was how they needed it to look during a pandemic. You know, and we discussed this. Has you anyone you, you reviewed Go ahead. Go ahead. Has anyone checked to see how the people that voted for these people that had dropped out actually placed their vote? Was it placed by mail? Was it mailed in early? Was it, did they actually go to the polls? Because that might be indicative of an issue as well. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, when I have TDMS research on, I'll see if they know anything about it. But, you know, it, you know, they even went to Wisconsin you know, a primary that they forced through, which was another 
it's like then they wanted us to get the vote the voting over with and i think that that was largely because you know they already knew the fix was in they weren't in any danger you know um and it occurred to me i was that's another thing that kind of put up a question mark for me is like well wait a minute so they really want this wisconsin primary to happen so much in fact that they're going to sue the governor of wisconsin and you know to force them to go ahead and run the election because bernie was still in and then um you know we're, we're supposed to think that you know at that point who is most at risk of covid-19 well that's the older people and that's essentially biden's base are the people 45 and over you know so mm-hmm. we're supposed to believe that it was somehow strategically to their benefit to, to to try to force this i don't think it would have been unless they were already aware of what the outcome was going to be at the end of that primary well, regardless who showed up even even if the election was fixed do we know it was Biden? Because I think Bernie stacked up better against Trump than Biden did. And I would think that if there were other parties in there, they might push the election without Biden having anything to do with it. <laughs> well, no, and that, that, that's Trump an interesting point, Bernie too. Much more than he fears Biden. There, yeah, and a lot of these places also have open primaries, you know, which creates an interesting mm-hmm. scenario because then Republicans can decide to show up and and sway things one way or the other. I mean, I like having open primaries because it benefits me because I can vote for whoever I want in the state of Michigan. But at the same time, I do, because I have a lot of conservative friends, I have seen people having conversations about, we should vote for this guy because we don't want to vote, you know, we don't want to face this other guy. And and Donald Trump is on, actually, they they caught him on a hot mic at one point um, saying that he was much more worried about going up against Bernie than Biden. And I can't really blame them. but the people that I think Bernie, that yeah, I don't know the type of Bernie had the type of an organization that was a groundswell type. It kind of counters, you know, Trump's uh, racist rallies. So Biden doesn't have that. That's and I think very Trump true. Was a lot more afraid of Bernie than of Biden. So even if the election was fixed, I'm not sure you want to necessarily limit your perusing the area to a Biden, you may want to look further because many people can hack them for many reasons. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, well, and then there's also just the the point that uh, some people, I've made this comment myself, as I say the establishment, when I say the establishment, I usually put quotes in the air because you have situations like Bill Clinton and the Bushes or the Clintons and the Bushes running against each other, attacking each other on stage and, you know, and at press conferences and saying nasty things to one another. And then you see pictures of them playing golf together, you know, like they're bosom buddies, you know, and it makes you wonder what goes on, what kind of conversations go on during those golf games. I mean, you're an attorney. I've heard that a lot of, um, you know, uh, court cases are decided during golf games and they're not supposed to be, but I mean, you know more about that than me. It could just be, you know, rumor, but you know, that it's the same concept. We're just going to rub elbows with each other and, you know, and kind of, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. at the, at the end of the day, I think that there, there were also people in the DNC that feel that if they had to lose to Trump again, at least he's a rich person and has their best interests in heart, you know, as far as they're concerned, whereas Bernie represents this guy who's, terrifies them because he's actually going to try to embolden the poor to think that they actually deserve to have some kind of quality of life. But anyway, um, so I wanted to segue 
into the issue of gerrymandering. And um, there's a good film that just came out about that called Slay the Dragon. Um, and this actually applied a great deal to Michigan, where I live, because we are a totally gerrymandered state. And I just thought that was something going on in our state. But the film Slay the Dragon revealed that there was actually an organized, concerted effort on the part of the Republican Party to get involved with getting elected to these obscure positions that basically decide the boundaries. And they also did point out during the film that it's not only Republicans who do this. Democrats have been known to do it sometimes, too. Um, but the idea is, is we're going to draw these maps that strategically you know, ensure that there's no Democrats or very few Democrats or we'll divide all the Democrats up into little pieces and then make sure that we make these districts that are primarily one-sided you know, to, to win elections. And at that point, you don't even have to hack the machines because they could all show up and vote and it wouldn't matter. Um, you know, and I guess it was interesting because I don't think I had heard this mentioned during any of the films that I had seen you featured in, but you said that Feeney asked you to write software to help with the process of gerrymandering. Do you want to expound right. on that? Well, gerrymandering was actually been fairly common since the, I think it was the 1800s. I think uh, some Democrat in Delaware actually did the first gerrymandering, but that's been kind of a common practice before. It used to be harder because you would actually have to physically sit down and put little pins on a map, you know, to find out where right. everybody was. But with computers, all you really have to do is match the database of the voter file with a GIS system, which is a, a graphical system that gives you the geography of their latitude and their longitude. And then you determine the number you want the percent you want in that, and all you have to do is push a button, and it will draw fingers. I call mine fingers. And it will draw fingers, which actually lets you select the one that works best for you. And so, you said you wanted to divide the Democrats up into small groups. That's actually not what you want to do. Okay. What you want to do is you want to capture all of them and put them in one spot so that even if they are the largest population – you narrow them down in other spots. So you may have one Democratic congressman and 12 Republican congressmen when, in fact, there's more Democrats in the state than there are Republicans. And it's very easy to do, especially because we are kind of – we kind of secure ourselves to different areas. So there's rural areas and there's cities, and cities tend to be more Democratic and the farmers tend to be more Republican, so it's actually really easy to do. Yeah, that's and basically there was the same guy that asked you to write the uh, um, program to rig an election for himself in Congress to get himself into Congress, and he also was interested in gerrymandering software. And we're supposed. The funny thing is, is that just your circumstance proves that anybody had any interest in it, and obviously that that leads the door open to who else are they asking because. You know, they have to be asking others to do this, especially in a situation like with Bertie and where he was at is they were desperate. Like they were like, what are we going to do? We can't stop this guy, you know, and they were making comments about how big his rallies were and all that. They were looking at the numbers and it was really intimidating. And, you know, to bring it back to this is that they're probably thinking to themselves, oh, my God, if these people vote. I mean, when I hold a rally, I can't get a dozen people to show up, you know, um, and it, but it takes all of that out of the door, essentially. That's one of the things that the gerrymandering um, proved in some of these states. I know it happened in Wisconsin. 
badly and it happened in Michigan and apparently it also happened in Ohio, but basically groups of Republicans decided to go ahead and take over and now they own the state houses of these various states. And even though the vote totals, Democrats versus Republicans in a lot of these states, like is in, they count all the votes cast and there's far more Democrats living in some of these states than Republicans and they're still winning all of the state seats. You know, and so you end up with the scenario where democracy is just thrown out the window. You know, there is no democracy at that point. Right. Completely tossed out because you basically, you know, you give the Democrats one seat and you take 10 because you just surround them and you take all of their people. We used to have uh, Kareen Brown. She used to be a congressman in Florida and she had a gerrymandered district. The Republicans did it, which started down below Orlando and squiggled around like a snake all the way to Jacksonville. And essentially what they did, because she's black, is they basically captured all of the black people going from Orlando to Jacksonville and put it in this one district. So her district was like 78, 80% Democratic. All around her, everything else fell because now they have cut out this huge swath of Democrats and every black Democrat. So you weren't going to get any other people running, any other minorities running around her. And mostly the Democrats couldn't run either. I see what you're saying. Essentially, it's just gather them all up into one place. Yeah, that's, that is so messed up. Well, and they know they have the power too. That was one of the things that happened in the Michigan state house was, they just ignore the Democrats that are in the state house because they have no power. They, they make up a tiny percentage. So they, they, at one point they just outright said it at one point while they were like going through their daily routines of um, procedure was we're in power now and we're going to do what we want. You know, like they didn't even make any bones about it, you know, and um, something that people have pointed out is that it seems as though the, the younger up and coming generation leans more progressive and that, Republicans felt that they needed to do something to protect themselves because, you know, in the in the long term, the kind of people that value their perspective on things are getting older and then it's just a matter of time, you know, and what you end up with these is also these weird situations where um, they own the state house, they get a bunch of the congressional seats, yet they can't they didn't win the governorship <laughs> and they're really right. sore about that, you know, because you can't gerrymander the governor's election. You know, um, and, and you, so we're supposed to, to believe to that gerrymander a state, <laughs> right? That's why. So we're supposed to believe that the Republicans win all the state houses, yet we win the governorship in Michigan. Governor Whitmer takes it as a Democrat, you know, and that doesn't like immediately red flag you to go. How does that even happen? You know, like so. But these things go on kind of beneath the the scenes. And in addition to that, there's also just the issue of, um, because when I ran for Congress, so many people just run for party. They don't even know who their congressman is. They certainly don't know who their state people are. They don't know who their state house member is. You know, they just vote party. And that makes it even more difficult for third parties. You know, I went to all kinds of voter forums. I went to debates and you know, um, the incumbent Republican just didn't show up because she had no reason to, um, you know, right. and because she had it locked down and it was, you know, it was a gerrymandered district. So, you know, and I felt so bad for this one friend of mine. He was a Democrat running for his position, but his district was so gerrymandered. He just didn't have a chance, you know, and 
you know, that's the part about it that bothers me is that there's this huge section of our democracy that people just don't pay any attention to. Like they don't even, they just kind of go, okay, well, this one's got a D or this one's got an R and it goes on both sides. None, none of them pay any attention to who their local officials are unless there's some kind of big scandal. I mean, I'll bet like your situation was probably like an anomaly because wait a minute, somebody's talking about what's going on with one of our congressmen, you know, like that, yeah. that was probably what really unusual. He was probably used to being able to just kind of shadow through his elections before you showed up. Right, and he had a, he had a tough time with it. He would put out all sorts of really strange mailers, and because he raised you know like fifty times more money than I did, but he kept trying to spend it, slamming me rather than running, and that cost right. him dearly. You know, he he really irritated people. <laughs> so, well, right, and that's nobody reads those damn things anyway. That's you know, I got all of my success going door to door. Like, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, especially with my political leanings, you know, I remember going, man, I don't know, this person has a Obama sign out on their yard. I don't know how this is going to go, but I went ahead and knocked on the door and I was highly surprised that those people listened to me and they ended up voting for me, or at least they said they did, you know, but it's, but you you do that, it's so much more effective. What's that? People will lie. So they'll tell you they're going to vote for you and they may actually believe it at that moment. But by the time they get to their ballot, they you know they slept three times, they forgot your name, and you see the no, DMR. No, that's entirely possible. <laughs> you know, another one of the ones that I think about that I wish that people would get more involved in, especially with all this concern about the police, is the sheriff. Nobody pays any attention to who the sheriff is, you know, and the sheriff is a very powerful position and and pay any attention to it at all. Like I especially think you know groups like Black Lives Matter. I was like, if you guys want to have an impact on how policing is done, get involved with your sheriff election, run a sheriff, you know, find a police officer who, you know, is qualified. It is, is, you know, um, interested in your cause and then get him elected. It wouldn't even be hard. Like, it's like, you know, because people don't pay any attention. They don't, they usually don't know anything about their sheriff, you know, going into the election. Same thing with the judges. Well, they probably don't know anything don't, about them. You don't even have to be a cop to run for sheriff. No, that's you can be true. a butcher or baker. Anybody can run for sheriff. It's an administrative position. You're not out there on patrol like uh, Andy Griffith. You know, it's right. It doesn't really work that way in a real city. So, right. But you can see what I mean, though. You would have significant influence over what went on as far as law enforcement. Certainly more than you would just by protesting sure. alone and not being involved. That's the part that yeah, I think I wish they would learn. You can that again, change I'm sorry? the way people behave. Well, yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, uh, we've talked about gerrymandering, we've talked about election fraud, and I guess, so let me start first by just saying, um, talk about your opponent that you're running against now. What's, what's their name? What's their, what's their idea, you know, or their platform? Um, he doesn't really have a platform. I am running in a district that is an R7, which means I have to basically get 20,000 new voters in order to have a chance to win. So this coronavirus is really killing me. And, of course, no one's, you know, contributing to uh, campaigns right now. So, you know, I'm not going if, – if no one contributes enough to get airtime and we can't get out and touch people, there is no possibility of winning this cycle. It is impossible. But that being said, he doesn't campaign for anything. He was um, – his claim to fame is he was a Green Beret. 
But what he actually did in the military, he wasn't like super soldier. He was one of the people that planned the Iraq war with Bush. He was one of the advisors. <laughs> Once he got out of the Iraq war, he opened his own little consulting company and received millions of dollars to continue to, you know, plot war. So that's what he does. Man, that's, that's tough, too, because the military-industrial complex is one of the most powerful lobbies, you know, and if they like somebody, they're going to they're gonna push them, and if they don't like somebody, they'll make you disappear, you know, maybe not physically, but you know, that's what happened to Tulsi Gabbard. She was talking about war. People definitely don't want to hear about that. That's a great way to get you off the media. <laughs> so uh, that, that's his claim to fame. So he's not really much of a problem if I can get the numbers going. Um, we, I'm an attorney, so we do a lot of free pro bono stuff. And uh, we had a uh, we had a referendum in Florida where people who had felonies but they'd done their time could then be allowed to vote. Sure. In Florida, there was none of that before, right? It's not really a civilized as like a Michigan or a Illinois. We're mm-hmm. still very Jim Crow racist thing down here, especially Republicans. Right. It's amazing. Anyway, because I'm originally from Illinois, and you don't see a lot of that in Illinois. At least it's not on the surface. People, if they're racist, they hide it. Right. Down here, they're proud of it. You know, they run around with their Confederate flags, and they, where everybody else is taking down statues to Confederate soldiers, they're actually putting them up in Florida, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, I used so. to live down there. I'm familiar. Yeah, that was, that was oh, rough. Okay, well, then you know. <laughs> so, um a constitutional amendment passed because, you know, you couldn't really get that on the ballot because, you know, that's the way it is down here. And they were allowed to vote. And then the Republican legislature has now put on a Jim Crow-style poll tax, which says, okay, you can vote, but first you have to go back and pay off all your fines and anything else we build you for and all that sort of thing. So hmm. that is now before the, the court system as to whether they'll try and enforce that or not. We have several groups that's trying to fix it, but if I can tap into those voters or potential voters, then I can change the district. And so, even though my policies are kind of progressive, I try to code it in a more moderate look so it's more palatable to people because it's less what you say than how you say it. You know, like George Bush had the Clean Air Act, which basically allowed a lot more dirty air to be around. So, you know, it's it's all how you look, right? Right. So we the have Patriot Act and its do. ability to get rid of the constitutional rights. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. The Patriot Act. That, that's a good one. You're a patriot if you give up the Constitution. Of course you are. Um, so... We're working on it in that fashion. I do a lot of expungement workshops where I go in and we bring people in and then we get their records expunged. You know, once the record's expunged, they also register vote. If I can get enough of those, then we will have the numbers to win. But right now, that's a little hard to do because everything in Florida is completely shut down. I don't know how it is in Michigan, but it's, it's mostly shut, shut down. down. It would be tough. I definitely could not do what I did when running for Congress. That you couldn't get around and do that anymore. Nobody's going to answer the door, and you can. They're not arresting people yet for walking around, but they would. You know, you could definitely. You are in a position where you could be fined if a police officer were to ask you what you're doing, 
Um, and you can't give an mm-hmm. explanation that's not either going, going to get medicine, going to shop or going to work. And I get it. Um, I understand why they're doing it, but it does put things, well, you yeah, know, and I think people that take, people take that too far. I mean, every time we have some sort of emergency, you will always get these uh, authority figures which want to press the issue. I just came back from a case in Miami, Florida, and um, it's a detainee at an immigration. It was a student that overstayed his visa because his attorney screwed up the filing, right? Sounds pretty normal, except they nab him up. They take him down there. I got him bond, but they're not releasing him because they said he could have been exposed to the coronavirus. So what we're going to do is take him and stick him in a room with a bunch of other people that could have been exposed to coronavirus. Oh. (laughs) Exactly. And even though he has bond, which means they have no legal right to hold him, I have not been able to get him released. We're going to be filing a uh, habeas corpus filing. We're going to be filing uh, an injunction for them able to – I don't know. I grew up in Illinois on a farm. We used to have these things where if your cattle got sick and they weren't great cattle, they were like junk cattle, you would take the sick ones and all put them in a pen, and then the sick ones would die, and some of them that weren't sick would get infected and they would die too, but, you know, it was cheaper than bringing someone in to take care of them and – the whole thing. Right. If you had if you had cow we really care about, you would never put them in the dead pen. Because the death pen is likely they're going to die. That's exactly what they're doing with these people. They're taking people that aren't showing symptoms but may have been exposed and they're shoving them all in the room to die. And I am just flabbergasted at that. They're That's treating horrific. these people like junk cattle. And, and they don't seem you're to... saying it's mostly like largely racially motivated too. I mean, is there, is that the distinctive pattern? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's going to be, well, it's people, it's immigrants. We have this whole, you know, Nazi, we hate everybody who's not white America right now. So these are the people that's in there. I was actually talking with uh, one of the clerks when I was doing the bond and she said, well, if they are in there, they deserve whatever they get. <laughs> you know, I said, well, oh, if a student that overstayed their visa, and they said, well, they're in there, they're guilty of something. Dude, you probably <laughs> sped on the way here. You're guilty of something. Maybe I should take you and lock you in a room with a bunch of people with coronavirus. Would that be fair? I just, Makes no that sense. is, oh, yeah, man. That is where we you are. Know, and it's interesting, so you, you you made okay. a transition from being a computer programmer to being a lawyer, and you know it seems like your your motivation to being a lawyer is to try to be able to help people. I mean, is that more or less how it started? Yes, I mean I became a lawyer because I was a whistleblower for the voting issue, and right. whistleblowers get screwed over. So I have been you know part of my practice is trying to get rid of government corruption, trying to help the whistleblowers. If I'm elected to Congress, we're going to make it so whistleblowers are protected and that the whistleblower, instead of getting screwed over, is going to get promoted, and he's going to be in charge of these folks, and we'll clean house. We'll get rid of the people that are stealing because they're stealing millions of dollars from people and just covering it up. I have one case where they took $28 million of government money 
and spent it to assist to give a monopoly to a business that was partially owned by the daughter of a congressman from the area and blocked out all other businesses that were competing. And this was TSA, the airport in Orlando. Wow. But the and of course, being Orlando, on, that's going to be a big airport, a lot of money changing hands. A lot of money changing hands, but they basically built a monopoly. Last year, that company sold for $290 million on a $28 million investment that wasn't even the company's money. The whistleblower still gets harassed, but the people who stole all that money from us are still in charge. If I get elected, those people are going to jail. We're going to get that money back from them. If we can sort this back so that the people who are right are in charge and the people who are basically crooks are pushed away, we can make this government work better for us. Well, that's awesome. Let me take a moment here and kind of go down the the points of your issues here on your website, which people can check out by going. I actually put it in the description of this broadcast. You can find his website, Clint Curtis for Congress. Um, issues. Do you remember when government employees were held accountable and actually worked for us? I guess that kind of expounds a bit on um, what you were just saying. You, you know, as a government corruption what? attorney, you you were constantly amazed at how many how much corruption exists in the agencies that our tax dollars are funding. So go ahead and I guess you've spoken a little bit about that, but go ahead and expound on it. Well, they all feel like they get to exist forever without any oversight at all. DHS is one of the worst. If I got elected, I would eliminate DHS and make those each of those little agencies independent once again. Because basically what we have is we have bureaucracies with a big, huge bureaucracy sitting on top of it that costs us another billion dollars. And that bureaucracy's main job is to not cooperate with Congress and oversight and to bury any issue that comes up. So there's a worst thing we could have. When, when it was devised, I knew it was probably not going to be a good thing. It's right. kind of what the Nazis did in 1940s. You know, they had their little homeland thing, and it's kind of what we went to. And you know, anytime you do that, everybody thinks they're a super spy and everything becomes top secret. And Well, let's talk about one thing. You know about the Freedom of Information Act? Sure. Right? Somebody does something bad, the news agencies can do a FOIA request, and the agencies have to reply. With DHS, they have an exclusion, believe it or not, written into their system where they do not have to comply with FOIA unless the, everyone who is mentioned in the report, including the people being accused of something, agrees to make it public. Wow. What, is, what does that do? <laughs> well, it's not good, that's for sure. <laughs> it allows them to steal and do anything they want to do. If they want uh... to shove, shove people in a death pen and let them die because they're immigrants, then they can do it. And they cover it up. Horrible. Horrible. I would get rid of that one. Now you think, you know, well, that's DHS. He's a Democrat. He's not going to like that. 
the EOC. <laughs> Most people think that equal opportunity would be good, right? Sure. Except what we have is horrible. We spend a half a billion dollars on an agency that solves less than 1% of the cases they cover. Terrible. We could do it with a, we could do it with a dart and do better. And doing EOC cases, usually the judges of that agency will not even give discovery to the people attempting to get information out of these agencies because at that level they could. But they don't. They don't make them give them anything except what they want to give them. So they make the problem worse. That agency needs to be a completely revamped, possibly eliminated. You do better to eliminate that process and go directly to court almost every time. But instead, people get to wait for a year and a half while they bounce through the EEOC process to get nothing out of it except the bill for half a billion dollars. Now, I see that you mentioned – yeah, no, I for sure. I see that you mentioned here, like the idea of a whistleblower, you know, taking a polygraph test and actually reminded me of something that I had forgotten to mention about the voter fraud stuff was that, you know, you took a polygraph test to affirm that everything you had said, you know, was true. Um, you know, and that's because a lot of people still, they label this stuff as crazy conspiracy. And the things that you're talking about here, you know, I think these are, these are just like all these other matters we've been discussing, how little people really know about it. Um, you know, there are people who talk about like it's usually considered to be a Republican position to want to cut out agencies. But the stuff that you're talking about is legit, exact, you know, like, you know, full on corruption that is wasting our money. Um, and I think that one of the things that bothers me the most about all this is that people are essentially hoodwinked into thinking that the reason why the economy is struggling is because of the 1.5 percent of the population that participate in fraud on the food stamp program and not <laughs> on people who are doing the kind of stuff that you're talking about um you know let alone the bank bailouts and all the money that those people got and then paid themselves and you know ridiculous sums of bonuses after begging for the government to bail them out you know um it from what I have seen the from what I've seen of the way government's handling things right now, I guarantee you that the money lost by the one point five percent of the people that's defrauding the system is a drop in the bucket to the money that's being defrauded internally from the people running it. And they basically anymore Congress does not have any oversight. They request something and they get ignored. It didn't used to be that way, but Trump kind of started that. Whenever Trump was asked for something, he'd just ignore it. When they tried to get witnesses for the impeachment, they ignored it. Congress has kind of shirked its duty a little in not holding these people in contempt. Throw them in jail until they reply. No one's ever going to want to throw themselves under the bus unless you make them. And we're not doing that. We're not holding people accountable. Trump isn't held accountable. Anything he does, his morons will jump in line and follow him around. So it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't matter if he's dealing with the Russians. It doesn't matter if he's assaulting women. It doesn't matter if he's doing some sort of vile or disgusting thing on public TV. They don't care. It's and almost religious, it's a- honestly. <laughs> It, it really feels like that. And you can show them stuff right there and nothing you say gets through. I mean, that's why I said it's, that's why I call it like a cult 
or compare it to a religion. You know, I think that the problem is, is that the left is not being honest with themselves about how this started. Um, you know, it's for the same, the same reasons that Trump became popular are the same reasons that Bernie was popular. Um, and the Democrats didn't pick up on that signal. Like I used to get paid to do things like analyzing campaigns and candidates and the finger on the pulse of the people. I knew early in 2016 that people were underestimating Trump and that they were underestimating Bernie Sanders. And people thought I was nuts who hadn't spent any time doing what I did for Senator Gravel. You know, I analyzed these situations. I'm like, yeah, Trump's going to get the nomination. I knew it early on and everybody thought I was crazy. I also knew that Bernie Sanders was going to be a serious problem. And I think part of the reason why, you know, problem for the establishment, obviously not for me, but, you know, people didn't recognize that the, the, the voters' attitudes have changed. This is not 2008. In 2008, somebody like Bernie Sanders would not have made it out of the second debate. And Trump presented kind of a unique situation because he has his own money. He is totally willing to burn the house down, you know, whereas Bernie was not. You know, he just flat out told them, if you guys screw me over in the nomination process, I'm going to run third party. And I'm familiar with the libertarians because I used to be one. They would have fallen over all over themselves to get Donald Trump on their ticket. They got a ballot access in all 50 states. Hillary Clinton would have beaten whichever stuffed shirt Republican they stuck up against her. But, you know, um, but so I want to move on unless you had something else to say about that. No, I'm good. Okay. So do you remember before insurance companies controlled health care and made it unaffordable? Um, you and I have discussed a little bit about your ideas on healthcare, and um, I think that just reading this, people may not understand how this actually does lead eventually to the progressive attitude of Medicare for all. Do you want to expound on that? Well, it is kind of Medicare for all. It's Medicare available to all, which means people would be able to buy in. Well, let's go. Let's look at England first. England has pretty much exactly what I'm proposing is you pay in, you only pay in about 5% of your income in England and you get all your medical, all your dental, all your vision and all your hearing at the 5% level, just about everything. Okay. Everyone pays in, but you can opt out if you want to. No one does of course, because it would be really stupid You know, you're paying next to nothing compared to if you have, like, an accident and you're having to pay out of pocket. England also has insurance company, which provides supplemental. It also provides initial coverage at certain amounts so that because there's a queue system, there's always a queue system. In the United States, the queue system is how much money do you have in your pocket. The guy with the most money in his pocket goes to the front of the queue. You know, you need a kidney and you're Steve Jobs, you'll get one. The other guy's going to wait. In England, the Q system is a little different. First comes children, then comes workers, then comes non-workers, and then comes the elderly. So unless it is an emergency situation, because emergency situations get on top of all that. You know, I used to use the word Trump, but I have given up on that word and will probably never use it again. <laughs> so the the emergency situations always come first. Other than that, they try and cycle it in that fashion. So if you are elderly and you have your own insurance and you need a knee replacement, 
but you want to go on a cruise, you know, at the same time that the knee replacement's going to need to be done because you're kind of back in the list a little ways, you can actually jump the queue with your insurance company. It also provides things like private rooms as opposed to, you know, dual rooms. Almost all rooms in England are like double occupancy, but you can get certain advantages by having that. It isn't even that expensive. It's like $3,000 a year for this because they're not covering that much because everything else is already covered by the NHS. But it, it doesn't eliminate insurance companies. It just provides a complete cycle of health insurance and, yeah, let's say health insurance covers all areas. That's what I'm proposing here. And the reason I'm not just saying we need to automatically get rid of insurance companies and make everyone buy into the system, first of all, it's hard to make everyone buy into anything in the United States. We like options. If you provide options, people will eventually go to the best option. That's why no one opts out of it in, in the UK. But if you force them, suddenly they're not happy. And then you have this whole conflict. If you build it and it works, people will gravitate to it. If you build it and it has flaws, by allowing that second tier of privatization, it will actually push it to be better. It's always better to have that two things going on, so you have supplemental. And that's why I say available to all rather than mandated to all. That makes a lot of sense. And I honestly would be, I'd be comfortable with that, um, especially as kind of like you pointed out strategically, it puts us in a different situation where there isn't so much pushback. You know, I have a lot of conservative friends in my social media because my kids are involved with the sport of wrestling. And for whatever reason, there's a lot of conservatives involved in that sport. <laughs> um, you know, anyway, so like one of them was uh, talking about, you know, well, she's like, well, he's going to take away my, my health care that I, you know, that I negotiated through my employer. And I'm like, but you won't need it anymore. <laughs> like they tend to leave, like they, they, they always put it up like this hot button issue when they're saying it, like, he's going to take your health care away. And, and they don't mention right. that. Yeah, because you won't need it anymore. <laughs> like they just, they, they, they play on the fears, but what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. Because a lot of them also, it is about the pushback. It's about, well, Hey, you're taking that away from me. That's, you know, that's what's going on right now in Michigan is people are freaking out because Governor Whitmer is, you know, has put in place a lot of these stay at home orders, you know, and it's not even that they necessarily have any kind of valid argument about why we shouldn't be doing that. It's just that somebody in a position of government tried to make them do something. And right. um, so I agree strategically, that makes a lot of sense. And um, that's definitely if, something if I look think. At, if you look at the Obamacare rollout, if you look at the Obamacare rollout, you had a case where people were saying, oh, I got to keep my policy, and you lied because I don't. Well, the policies they got rid of were actually very horrible policies. They, were, they covered next to nothing. I mean, they didn't cost a lot, but essentially you were only covered if an elephant fell out of the sky on a Thursday. Everything else was <laughs> off the table. And, you had, right. and they didn't qualify to be legitimate programs under Obamacare, so they didn't qualify for that. So they, they, all those basically went away because they knew no one was going to buy them at the same price you could buy real health care. 
But the big pushback is Obama lied. My my plan went away. Well, it certainly did, and if you'd taken the time to read it, you'd be glad. But we're Americans, and that's not the way we roll. <laughs> you know, we want right. that option, even if the option stinks. So, and a lot no, of unions have some really, a lot of unions have some really good plans, and they would basically have this supplemental thing, like they do in England, so that if they're hurt on the job, as opposed to having to share a room, they could have a private room, as opposed to. Um, that's just about all you really get. <laughs> you get a private well, room, right. and sometimes you can jump the queue. But I read about Denmark whoop. and some of the Nordic model countries that Bernie Sanders talks about all the time, that there's still private insurance, but it's usually for kind of things that you don't necessarily need. You know, but at the end of the day, the, the biggest thing that was most important was like, you know, I have a friend of mine who managed a drugstore, and he was also an EMT at one point. So this guy comes in, and he had literally sawed his thumb off somehow by accident while working and he was asking for disinfectant and the guy was like disinfectant you need to go to the hospital and he's like no I, I can't afford it so he just decided not to have a thumb you know like you know between that and the the people who die because they can't afford their insulin you know um stuff like that is what we really need to avoid beyond anything else is that people need to have these options you know in the most humane way you know and if if that means that we have the public option you're discussing and, you know, we move towards, you know, being able to get to a point where we don't need any kind of private anymore, then so much the better. And there is a so, certain transition period because in England, they started their healthcare system because Germany bombed them into nothingness. So there weren't hospitals, there wasn't anything. So the government had to create all this. In the United States, most of the hospitals are privately owned. Most of anything medically involved is privately owned. In order to have an effective system that doesn't, you know, basically break people, you have to control those costs. So you have to move those hospitals out of private ownership or build new ones, kind of like the VA system, and uh, and that will take a lot of time. So it won't, you can't just flip on a light switch and go, looky here. We are, you know, Medicare for all today. It will probably take a decade to actually have a system that is fully usable and where you can actually control costs. Because until then, we've got to rent space. We've got to utilize private hospitals. There's a big cost issue. Right. And I remember discussing this with you previously that, you know, if it came across your desk and you were a congressman and you'd, you'd obviously would go ahead and vote for Medicare for all, you know, is that still your position? Sure. Yes. As you probably have a lot of questions, making, very valid questions, like the one you just asked about transition. <laughs> you want to know how you're going to pay for it. Tell me how you're going right. to pay for it. You know, what are you going to rent? What are you going to build? What are you going to do? But mm-hmm. It would have to be more than aspirational. We have to actually have a plan to get there. So, (laughs) but it's good to have a plan. It's really the only system that would work in the long run. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So social security provided enough income so that the seniors did not live in poverty. So I guess uh, go ahead and expound on that. Well, about 35 to 40% of seniors that draw social security are actually under the poverty line. So while Social Security was built in, um, who built that one? That would be Truman, right? 
think so. Well, that might be FDR. I'm not sure. I, I think it was Johnson. Johnson built it, but Truman was the first one to get his check. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, anyway, um, yeah, it was Lennon Johnson that actually got the Medicare thing passed. It was a Kennedy proposal. And, um, okay. But essentially it was a proposal to keep people from living in poverty because before that, seniors weren't taken care of at all. So if your family didn't take care of you, you're eating dog food and living on the street. Now we're almost to the same position. Social Security is not cost, and we have people 40% that's living in poverty. Taxes are always an issue, and I don't propose taxes. What I am proposing is a national lottery system where people would be able to buy a ticket to help elderly people not eat dog food. And, you know, I would like it to be a little different because, you know, if you play the lottery now, it's kind of a waste because someone will win $10 and they'll roll over the $12 million price. Right. But the lottery system that I would propose is something a little more fair where half of it goes into the amount to split with the seniors so we can get them out of poverty so we can actually increase everybody's amount. And these numbers actually work out if you want to do the math on them. But the other half would basically go to a winner every time. You would have a winner every time. So you would have a $200 million winner every time you had a drawing, even if you had to draw 12 times to find one. So there wasn't this whole bait-and-switch thing with lottery, you know, where there's a $2 billion payout, but people don't ever win that. They win the $100,000 one and they'll roll the whole thing over. My question is who gets that $200 billion at that point? Because you never see right. where that money goes. So that's always kind of been an odd thing. You say, you know, you'll say, oh, it's going to education, but it doesn't because they just keep cutting education on the state budget, putting some lottery money into it, but obviously not all of it. It just seems to disappear. I'd like to see an accounting of lottery money. Yeah, they were told that it goes towards schools or whatever, but I've never been given any kind of information as to what how that those numbers actually play out. That's interesting. And schools um, always seem to be out of money, and teacher salaries always seem to be getting cut or not getting raised according to even cost of living. Well, if lotteries are doing so well, shouldn't that be additional money? Doesn't seem to be. So... It just seems a bit like a scam, like, you know, okay, we'll put this money in for the lottery and we'll take that money out the other door so they don't have it anyway, so it never goes anywhere. So in order for a lottery to be useful for the seniors, we need to make it a legit one, one that is above board, one that is verifiable, one where every dollar of that split goes out to that winner. So everyone could go to college without the risk of crushing debt. Yes. A lot of other countries already have this as well, um, where they have education that's legitimate. Basically, if you want to go to college, you would sign up. You wouldn't have to have any sort of loans. You wouldn't have to have anything. You just sign up, and then when you graduate, you wouldn't have to worry about it until then. It doesn't matter if you want to associate's degree or you want a master's degree or you want to be a lawyer or a doctor, you wouldn't pay anything during that term. At the end, 
you would basically pay off a certain percentage from your income for the rest of the time. And that way you wouldn't have any debt at all because if you didn't do well, and some people don't, this is especially problems with uh, minorities where they go and they get this great education and they do really well and they're top of their class and then they get out in the real world and they just don't get hired because they're black or they're brown or something else. Sure. So, you know, they're gay. We couldn't have that in the office even though he's top of his class. You know, so you get a lot of those issues and then the guy's carrying around $500,000 worth of debt and he's working at Walmart. So he's still going to pay that percentage. Let's say just for the heck of 4%. He's going to pay that percentage of 4% regardless of what his education costs. Because as many people who are going to get stuck on the bottom end, there's going to be the other guy that got the associate's degree and, you know, invented or a CEO at some big company and he's making a million a year. So he's still going to be paying his same percentage, even though his education was less. Overall, the more education you get, the more money you make generally. The problem is it hasn't worked out that way for a lot of people. So, you know, they're getting killed. They're, you know, they bring in three grand a month and they have to pay eight, $900 in student loan bills. With that system, essentially everything is covered. You never have to worry about the debt. You're just paying percentage, whatever it is, and you get to go to college free. Well, nothing's free. You get to pay it off later, and it will basically pay for not only what you're doing now, but the next person in line. Because and 5% of your income is not like crushing like we're dealing with with so much of this other debt that goes on, that's for sure. Right, five percent, four percent, you know, whatever the the final tally is, but it essentially, you're, if you if you go to grad school, you know, your average salary is going to be thirty percent higher, and you're paying the only person who really will feel anything because the five will be under what you make generally by going to school. The only person really making anything is the guy where it just didn't work out. You know, he went, he was in a four-year college, and he got in a car accident, and now he can't do it. Well, he still owes that debt. And, in fact, you can't bankrupt that debt because uh, the government made a deal with Sally Mae back in, uh, what was that, 2010 or something, and said, we don't care if you're bankrupt. The debt still stays. That's something I would change. That debt goes away. It just goes away. There's no point in charging the guy 5% if he's going bankrupt. Well, you can always pick it up later, but during his bankruptcy period, you would waive that percentage because you really want him to come back from that bankruptcy. And some people can't when they have these other debts on them. Right, especially with like the student loans that can't even be discharged that way anymore. And right. like, so I actually, ironically, I, one of my superiors in the restaurant chain that I work for uh, has a criminal justice degree and she got into it because she wanted to help people. And she just, she couldn't find anything that ironically that paid as well or more than what she was making in the restaurant industry. And she's still paying on this student loan for a criminal justice degree. She's never used other than her brief time trying to work as a, she was a, um, Oh, probation officer. <laughs> you know, like, just, it's not like she took underwater basket weaving. You know, there just really wasn't much out there for her 
Um, you know, and I, I see those stories all the time, not to mention when you say working at Walmart, I, I run into people all the time who basically got hoodwinked in this, you know, one thing or another. And sometimes it's not even that they chose something bad. It's just that the market has changed. You know, the only guarantee you have is debt. And if you don't find anything, you know, basically that works with what you learned, then you're just sitting there holding the bag and the, uh, the industries involved just keep raising their prices because they know they can, you know? Um, right. So, you know, I think this is an interesting perspective on this. So now you have a family could live comfortably on a single income. Okay. Um, basically it's a lot, it's similar to what uh, Mr. Yang was proposing when he was running. Although his was okay. a, his was actually a movement of money away from wealthier people to poorer people. I think it was a hard sell because you know these people don't like to give up their money. <laughs> yeah. You know, Republicans will run on taxes all day long. So this is kind of a counter to that. Uh, part of the issue we have right now is that a lot of the money that we could be taxing is not taxed. We have kind of this, um, our immigration system, I do immigration, by the way, but our immigration system is set up in a way that it promotes kind of modern day slavery. So these people who come over here because a lot of reasons, most of they're not able to survive in the countries they're in or, you know, they're going to be killed or murdered. There's, um, you know, their kids down in, let's take, uh, let's take Guatemala. Guatemala, if you go to Guatemala City and you have children, one out of, if you have five children, one of those children will be either killed or kidnapped and put in the slave sex industry. That is the condition these people are living in right now. Okay? They're suffering from a civil war they had that went on for 40 years. There's gangs running around. So a lot of them are here, and they're basically being treated like slaves. They're robbed. They're killed. Nobody cares. In fact, if you go to ICE, they'll stick you in with a bunch of uh, people with the coronavirus and don't really care if you come out or not. So that's our own government. Right. But there's a lot of businesses that do that as well because you know that the 50, 60 million people that are here – have to be doing something to make money, have to be doing something to have a place to live, and have to be doing something to have food to eat. And even if they're six to a household because they're not being paid properly, they're doing something. Someone's being hired. Someone's doing something. And the biggest issue is that the money that would go for the betterment of society is actually going into the pockets of these people that are supporting this. Basically, I call them slavers. They're keeping these people in slavery, and it puts money in their pocket. And the government knows this, and the government doesn't care. If you ever – in fact, they had a big raid down in Texas where they went down there, and they got into this factory, and they arrested all of the brown people. They didn't arrest all of the illegal immigrants. They arrested all the brown people, and then they let the ones go they wanted to later. Might have been profiling a little. Do you know how much the factory was fined for having those people there? Nothing. How much? Not a nothing. Dozen. No charges filed, not a fine, nothing. 
And that, that is, is something I had always wondered about. I didn't understand why the right more or less is just kind of brainwashed into blaming the Mexicans. Um, nobody ever goes after these companies that exploit them. You know, nobody right. talks about that. Like you're, you're concerned about them coming to take your job. Like they're, they're take, they're giving the jobs to these people because they can pay them pennies on the dollar, you know, and nobody goes after them. Nobody talks, you know, and, I remember hearing a report once that there's actually information that two government agencies could trade with each other because in some cases, particularly the illegals are essentially told, well, just, you know, use someone else's social security number and that there's a way for them to figure out who these people are. And those two agencies are legally not allowed to talk to each other. So they never catch the people involved. They don't even care. I have a person that I have a case for. He has been trying to report to them a ring of people that counterfeit these social security numbers and hand them out to illegal aliens because he needed one when he was uh, trying to work and he hadn't gotten his green card yet, and this person hooked him up, settled up. No one has called me back in three months. No one. Tend to care, but they're not really trying to stop it. You know, it's all just a, a, a fantasy for the rednecks. You know, the rednecks might care, but the people that are actually feeding them do not. Anyway, what we can do with these people is if we convert them to naturalized citizens, they would then have rights. They would then pay taxes. We would have enough of a tax base to actually pay the rest of the taxpaying citizens an additional $10,000 per year. Do the math, it's there. And we'd eliminate these businesses that actually are exploiting them. That's what we need to do. We can eliminate slavery and put money in our pockets at the same time. I do this nationalization events all the time. We did this event in a little town called Pearson. Okay? These people came up to me, little bitty people. I don't know where they were from, but they were probably like five foot tall. <laughs> and it was right. a, a man, woman, and a little bitty kid, little bitty boy. And they came up, and they wanted me to help them because I help a lot of people. And I said, I will help you. What do you need me to do? The one actually spoke English pretty good. The the guy did not. The little boy probably did because they usually learn English better, you know, when you're children and everything. And so depending on how long they've been here. Anyway, but the woman spoke it excellent, probably better than me. And uh, she said that their little girl had been kidnapped, seven years old. They'd been kidnapped, and they don't know what to do. And I said, okay, what's your name? Well, they wouldn't tell me their name. Where are you from? They wouldn't tell me anything because they were afraid that if they were, if they were caught by ICE, they'd be deported back to their country, and their kid would die. The other kid would die. So basically they had to forfeit the girl in the United States in order to make sure that the boy that was still there wasn't killed. This is in the United States. This is Slavery 101 from the 1860s. It's horrible. And that's what we're allowing to happen. If we simply make the workers into workers and tax them, it'll put money in our pocket. It'll make our economy better because they're already working. 
and everything will be better. Then I would move all of the revenue that goes into immigration because there's a lot of filing fees and stuff and move that into this split-up tax base. Let's call it an impact fee. So that essentially these rednecks drinking their beer and complaining about the Mexicans will start saying, maybe we should get some more so they can send me a bigger check. <laughs> so essentially you're figuring out a way to tackle the the ubi that the yang supporters would want and tackling the immigration issue at the same time that, that's an interesting right. and point it, and what we would do to make sure that it doesn't i mean you don't want a lot of people just streaming across you know that aren't good people the way you would do that is we would then go with the same thing we've had since 1980 but never enforced it was Reagan and Tip O'Neill put together this thing called E-Verify. You ever heard of E-Verify? No, go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, it was a computer system. It is a computer system where any employer can log on, put in a Social Security number, and get an approval back to hire that person. That Social Security number is tracked so they know if it's valid. So if it shows up in Vermont and in El Paso, they know there's an issue. So they can either block the number and say don't hire them, or they can say go ahead and hire them and then come down and get the person that's uh, working illegally. Hmm. So it's a great system. It wasn't that great in the 80s because computers weren't that great in the 80s. But right now it's a great system, and it is not required, even though it's been around since Reagan. There's just so much money being made by these people who use these, you know, uh, immigrants. That's why I I've frequently yes, let's call them the, I, let's call them the slavers. Right. No. Yeah. That's I'm I'm good with that theory for sure. Especially that's it, it's the same thing with the even offshore when they outsource they don't outsource to just anywhere they outsource to places where people will be so desperate that they will take the scraps thrown off the table because it's better than starving to death. You know, that's where our jobs went, you know, and that's another thing that the, the conservatives in Michigan don't really look at because they're upset with what happened to the jobs. And I'm like, you know, they and, and then again, they throw their disdain at the people who live in those countries. It's not, you know, the, as if it's the fault of the people in India or Bangladesh. And I was like, you know, you, you don't ever look at the companies that are doing it, do you? You certainly don't mind the, the cheap widescreen TV that you bought. It was made by some, you know unfortunate enslaved person over in, you know, Hong Kong or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't, they've basically been hoodwinked into into blaming the wrong people. And I have a lot of friends that are immigrants and, you know, it's when I wanted to teach my kids about racism, uh, one of the things that I did was had them watch the movie Gangs of New York because it goes all the way back to colonial, like early colonial times and that the Irish people were the Mexicans of that time, you know, because they all kept coming off the boats and taking everybody's jobs. And, you know, it's it right. put things into focus for them and they understood it. And then now anytime they see something similar to that, they know exactly what they're looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bad thing. I've always thought when we do these like these NAFTA or any of these deals that we should balance two items because in America jobs would come back. We balance the wages, and we buy, uh, balance the environmental conditions. As long as those countries are going to abide by the same thing we abide by, then, you know, we can go with free trade. But to let them flood the market with extra cheap labor or 
pollute the world. I mean, China was a big violator of this initially. In fact, they're, uh, they had so much air pollution over there that people couldn't even go out without wearing, you know, double masks. Now we're all doing that, but they had to wear masks right. to keep the soot from getting Now they're trying yeah. to get some air controls into place, but if we use that as a balancing feature, the jobs would come back. Because we got rid of jobs by getting rid of the pollution. We said, you know, you can't produce toxic fumes and flood it over the top of the city. And they said, well, that's fine. We'll move it to Mexico, and we'll put those same toxic fumes over the top of Mexicans. Because they're not really people, right? I mean, we'll just put those in a pen and with the coronavirus people. We don't have to worry about that. Man, so. that's really bugging the hell out of you, isn't it? <laughs> I just Trust me, crazy. I understand completely. I, I understand, I, but I can tell that is really bothering you because it's right this there in the your government. face. Right. This is the man. This isn't like some, you know, backwoods uh, slaver that you know is abusing uh, people because they can't afford to turn him in. This is um, this is the government routinely putting these people in death pens makes me crazy if these people die don't you think that the people who knowingly put them in there are guilty of murder absolutely i do too i mean if it was a war it would be a war crime you know you couldn't do that to somebody (laughs) in a war yes it's a crime against humanity right now you do not do that you know i Of course, I would be willing to give up all of the penalties if we simply take the people who are doing this and their families and we put put them in that same little dormitory for about a week. I wonder if they'd go. (laughs) So um, moving on now, we have veterans could rely on a fair evaluation. Right. Veterans are still having trouble. I do a lot of VA law. And a lot of things that normal people and normal doctors would say are related, the VA doesn't accept. So, and the same is true with like, even Vietnam veterans, you know, there's not as many of those left as there used to be, but uh, Agent Orange. It was called Agent Orange because it was a herbicide and it was labeled with an orange stripe. That's how you knew it was Agent Orange. There was also Agent White, Blue, Yellow, Purple, and Pink. Okay, All of them were deadly. All of them were used at every military base interchangeably. And yet, they still are restricting veterans that have multiple conditions that are related to Agent Orange because they don't show it in their records that that Agent Orange was actually on that base kind of let the science rule it and say, well, if you have multiple conditions that are indicative of Angel Orange, unless you can show me it wasn't there, then they qualify. And I think we need to give the veterans a little more latitude because they went over there and got shot at. They went over there and put their lives on the line and, you know, give them a little break here. Don't try and uh, mess them up with some rule that makes absolutely no sense to the rest of the world. Yeah, the Gulf War syndrome, I think the government has learned their lesson because now there's people who have the Gulf War syndrome and they still, the government will not in any way openly admit that it has anything to do with anything they did. 
um, when it's very right. clear that these people have a problem. I've met people with Gulf War syndrome, and it is very clear that they have a very real problem. It's not just PTSD. Like the fact that they tried to make it like it was in their head or something was insulting. You know, and I have a friend actually who got cancer because of Agent Orange exposure during Vietnam, and thankfully he survived that. Um, but, you know, but I agree with you, and it doesn't help that in many cases, like we said earlier, the the people who go and get exposed, especially during Vietnam, because there was a draft going on, you know, but it's mostly the poor, you know, it, it's not the kids of the wealthy who get exposed to this stuff most of the time, you know, and well, it, go ahead. There's, there's still a draft going on. It's just an economic draft now. Before they would pull everybody. Now the volunteers, it is a volunteer army, but a great proportion of the volunteer army are the people that need the money. They don't have the ability to pay for college, so they can't get in. They, you know, which I'm gonna try and fix. They don't have the ability to necessarily move directly out of high school into a job because you're a minority or you're broke or you live in a community that doesn't have a lot of jobs. So if you don't have a lot of transportation, you're pretty much stuck. So a lot of times the military is that economic draft. Well, you can't do anything else. You can go join the army. And so yeah, I remember that, that the recruiting posters are right there at Michigan Works when you go in there because you're looking for unemployment. And you have a you know you need a job. All the recruitment posters are right there. Exactly. You think that's accidental? <laughs> no, no way. Not at all. I have too many friends who joined the military specifically during the recession because of this issue. Yeah. Right. Now, you've got a lot of war. Say that again. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said, even when you're not in a war situation, there's a great amount of risk. I mean, you basically are their property. I have done cases where um, non-war time, but they were being deployed. Uh, I don't know which war it was. We have so many, but one of them, and um, they got their uh, anthrax shot. Okay, it was right before they were getting out, but they had to get it to go out. So they they got out, then they called them back. Had to be the Gulf War. Sounds like that routine. Called them back. They couldn't find a record of their anthrax shot, so they gave them another one. Oh. Now, the rest of their life, their skin flakes off. They look like a snake, and they're just oozing pus everywhere. So uh. we got them VA, but. There's a lot of risk that doesn't need to be there, but in the military, things aren't, you know, wait, I'm going to hire a lawyer. I already had that shot. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's like you're in a Well, yeah, they, they sign like certain shot. agreements and all that. I have a friend who was in the Navy, and he was a completely healthy, uh, you know, guy, and he got deployed, and for whatever reason on the ship he was on, the quartermaster thought it would be cute if he kept giving him the wrong size shoes. And this went on during his entire time in the Navy. And now he walks with a cane because it permanently wrecked his hip and his leg. They don't function properly because he had shoes that didn't fit him. And when he tried to get some kind of assistance, they basically said, well, you signed this contract that, you know, makes us not liable for that. And, you know, that's just disgusting to me. Maybe I'll put him in touch with you. <laughs> but, um, we'll, we'll be glad to take that case and take it all the way that we need to school. Uh, I had uh, I have people that uh, were on Navy ships in the Gulf War, and the ships weren't designed to 
cool their radio equipment and their uh, radar equipment properly. So they would have to open these doors and expose themselves to radiation or the machines would crash. So now they have all sorts of skin kinks and everything. So we sent that in and they go, well, that's not covered. They're not supposed to open the door. But they were wow. told to open the door. <laughs> you know? So we just have to get smarter people involved to see if it's really something that can, that can be affected and uh, take care of people. And we don't do that. So you got a lot of stuff on here about Russia, and we did discuss a bit about the issue. Is this mostly having to do with the, the election fraud, or did you have other issues about Russia that you wanted to bring up? You know, Russia's been our enemy for forever. They always are. You know, I mean, uh, Trump sucks up to them. I suspect they either have something on him or they've told him he does. <laughs> so, right. I mean, if you flip an election, if you actually flip an election, and then you go to them and say, well, you know, when we were talking that one time, joking about flipping election, we have a tape on that. We can uh, we can get that out to people, so you better do what we tell you to do. Because he's kind of been their puppy dog the whole way through. And uh, But they were our enemy from the very beginning. When they were first formed, we actually backed the czar, not the Russian Revolution. And any other time, even in World War II, they were an ally, and they were not. They didn't like us. We didn't like them. You know, Patton said, you know, well, it's nice we beat Germany. We should keep going. Well, everybody's still in the field. I think he might have been right. Um, every, every American soldier that's been killed in battle has most likely been killed with a Russian weapon. Vietnam, Gulf War, everything. Every side we back they back the other side. You know, the other countries are scared to death of them rolling in on them, especially with Trump trying to destroy NATO and everything. The fact that they hacked our elections, I think, is something that, you know, whether you think it's just they gave out emails or whether it's actually they penetrated electronic systems. They did both. But I think it's something that is officially an act of war. And what we should do I mean, we really don't want to go to war with them. But what we should do is we should basically isolate them like we do North Korea. We should cut off all trade with them. We should just cease to work with them until they want to be a good neighbor to America as opposed to the Darth Vader of the world. And <laughs> if their hacking of our system was actually part of a plan with Americans, it would be more important to know that than to punish them for it. So if they provided evidence of, you know, if, if them and Trump sat down and said, okay, go do this and this, or any of Trump's people, and they could produce that evidence, then we would basically give them a pass, kind of like you give a deal to the other drug dealer that shot somebody because the other guy shot two people. So they're all still bad people, but you want the worst. And, of course, the worst is anybody who's done the inside stuff. So, you know, we don't want that to happen again. So that's basically well, my Putin take on was a KGB was guy, so inevitably that's going to impact <laughs> his way of looking at things. Right. So the fact right. that people keep getting killed when they make him angry and stuff like that, you know, for sure. Right. Well, we, um, we used to be above that. It wasn't that long ago that America was the good guy. We were like the John Wayne or the uh, you know the good guy, and the Russians were 
the bad people. I mean, a year or two ago, they killed somebody in um, in London. They poisoned him and his daughter, and they died. And the world was up in arms and said, you can't assassinate people in another country just because you want to. We don't care if you don't like him. We don't care if you think he's a bad guy. You can't go in and kill him. And then Trump does the same thing and kills this Iraqi guy. Right, which, yeah. Even if he was a horrible person, what that does is that makes America the sneak attack, lacks any sort of moral standing. It legitimizes assassination in foreign countries, something that used to be considered a war crime is now something that the Republicans actually got around and go, yeah, he killed him, but it was a good thing because he's a bad guy. Well, you never kill somebody you think's a good guy. So essentially they're opening themselves up to the same kind of attacks. And what are they going to say then? It's okay for us, but it's bad for them. So I, I have some major issues with the direction of the country and the fact that we no longer have the moral high ground. We have forfeited the moral high ground to be playing in the mud. We're just no better than the Russians with Trump in there. Well, I think we've covered uh, the issue of voting, obviously, and election fraud, which is on here. And, you know, we, we've discussed a little bit about integrity and honesty. And that's something I remember you saying throughout the course of that film when the guy was looking at you like why are you doing this this is so dangerous you're like because i was raised to do what's right you know essentially that's a paraphrase but um we definitely don't have a lot of um uh ground for that as far as like it's not very popular i remember when john stewart had ron paul on one point he said ron ron paul you've you've shown a great deal of integrity and honesty. Americans don't usually go for that. <laughs> you know, and of course he was being, you know, he was joking, but he wasn't, he wasn't wrong. You know, I don't agree with Ron Paul about a lot of things because obviously I'm not right leaning, but you know, he was somebody who had a big influence on me getting involved in politics when I was younger. But, you know, I think that's something else that is, you know, as we've kind of come full circle here talking about, you know, everything, we had a, a great conversation. I'm really glad you came on. Um, and I hope that I can have you on again sometime to discuss, you know, anything. Sometimes I just have a panel of people that discuss whatever's going on in the world. And, you know, I really hope that you do reach out to the rest of the progressive movement, particularly when it comes to this issue of you championing the rights of immigrants. You know, um, I think that that would go a long way. I think that you would find allies, um, especially with people like AOC and, you know, the people who already try to champion that issue. I think that you could bring you know, a lot to the table with them. And I really hope to someday hear you on C-SPAN making these same arguments. Um, now, to, if to we do... can get our election system back, back so that you can count the votes, I think you'd see a much greater movement for progressive candidates. And you would see, because, you know, when you talk to people, even people who say they're conservative aren't really conservative when it comes to real issues. You know, they want health care. They want their families taken care of. They want normal things. They want their kids to be able to go to school. You know, we all kind of want the same thing, and we've separated ourselves out, but with the voting issue up in the air, that's a problem. So what progressives need to do more than anything else is make sure – I mean, Bernie said we need a paper ballot. Failed to say is that it's not just the ballot. You actually have to count the stupid thing. Right. Don't send it through a machine and pretend it's right. You've got to hand count it. You can do it in a precinct in about an hour. 
you know, if you want to send it to the machine so that it gives the TV stations and the reporters the instant results, that's fine, but make that preliminary. Make the actual physical hand count the one that really counts. And if you do that, Bernie might win, progressives will win everywhere, and the causes that we actually care about will actually succeed. Otherwise, we'll be talking about this, you know, 10 years from now. Right. That's, you know, and, and the gerrymandering thing kind of plays into that as well. It's that these two things together are essentially have robbed us of our government actually working the way that it was theoretically intended to do. Um, I mean, the party system had a lot to do with that, too. Unfortunately, the party system isn't even in the Constitution. And a lot of people I, I see they. Like I did a show specifically about that topic and I was surprised. There were so many people that added feedback saying, man, I didn't know that. I was like, you didn't know that there's no <laughs> mention of Democrat and Republican in our constitution because they don't, they don't think about it. That's why, you know, um, you know, that, that's also why I, I do hope that the, that we can get more parties. Um, it's just, it's going to be difficult. What do you think about ranked choice voting? Um, normally, it would be okay, except it is very hard to do with a hand count because now you've taken the mix of votes and you put another layer. I mean, you do it with a computer in a few minutes. The problem is then you're back to computer. And I think right. ranked, choice val- ranked choice voting should not be used until we actually get the hand counting voting down because right now you would have to run each ballot. Let's say there's five people in the race and you get five choices you would have to run each one about five times before you actually would know who got that one vote. Right. So you have a massive complex layer on top of it. Uh, The best thing to do is to do a little fake one with, let's say, 20 20 races, all with ranked choice voting. Sit down and do about 50 ballots and then sit there yourself and try and figure out what the vote totals are. It'll take you hours. <laughs> right. As no, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. I had never thought about it in the perspective of trying to stop fraud, but that makes sense. I do think. Um, well, liberty wise, it's horrible. <laughs> right. Now, one of the things I, I did think, because I was doing research on the history of the Progressive Party, that's one of the other reasons why I think I, I wish we could get more parties, is it used to be something that people did. I mean, if you could actually start a party, run an election, and have a theoretical chance of winning. Um, you know, that, that system is gone, but, um, you know, one of the things that they discussed and Senator Gravel, who was kind of my political mentor was big on the idea of direct democratic referendums. Um, those would generally kind of come down to a yes or no. So that would be fairly simple to count. Um, Mm -hmm. in fact, might even in general, it'd probably be easier to count than trying to count an election with four or five candidates available. Um, so, but yeah, in general, uh, you know, again, uh, I want to thank you for being on. And uh, did you have any parting words that you wanted to give to the voters in your district who might be listening? Uh, log into my site. If you want to volunteer, I can use the volunteers because we can still make phone calls. Uh, if you want to contribute, I really am going to need the money if you want me to have half a chance to win. And uh, that's about it. Just log on. You don't even have to be in the district. If you want to help and you want to make sure that we actually can move this country forward, then log on, volunteer, contribute. That's what I need right now. All right. Well, Clint, I'm going to call you off the air uh, just for briefly to talk to you about some of what you just mentioned. 
And um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, if this is your first time listening to V-Radio, uh, please make sure that you also get an opportunity to check out part one of this broadcast. I unfortunately got cut off due to a technical glitch. Um, and uh, I should, I'm actually in negotiations right now to have TDMS researchers, head researchers on my show to discuss the discrepancies in the um, exit polling that we've been discussing over the course of this conversation. The exit poll deviations show a very clear line towards election fraud. Um, and at this point, well, I do have a Patreon. I don't really expect anybody to be patronizing or be being a patron for my show and I'm doing okay financially right now. I don't, I don't need any help, but you know, just do me a favor and spread word about this podcast because essentially I do this just as more or less a public service. I spend money on it. I don't make any on it and I'm fine with that, but it definitely helps my motivation when I see that I have more listeners and I reach people all over the world. I've made a lot of friends through this show, and I'd like to continue to do that. So thanks again for tuning in, everybody. And um, I'm going to leave you with a moment from the film network. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this You've go out? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. Well, they're going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chair, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Who are you talking to, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? But first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. They're yelling in Baton Rouge. Get up, get up, get up out of your... Son of a bitch! We struck the mother load. Stick your head out of the window, open it, and stick your head out and keep yelling and yell, I'm as mad as hell, I'm not going to take this anymore. 
Just get up from your chairs right now. Go to Where the window. Where are you going? Everybody I don't want to see anybody's yelling. Open it and stick your head out and yell and keep yelling. I'm...